talent development and getting into the, the nitty-gritty, the, the really small bits, the, the actual useful bits of research. I think there's a difference between repeatability research and the nitty-gritty uh, diving in research, asking questions that are really going to make a difference. Now, there are lots of different points that I've taken this week, and you'll find all of the resources in the uh, in the show notes, wherever you're listening to this or watching this, because I do have the video on YouTube. And what essentially I'm going to do is go through some of the notes I've taken this week and discuss them from a research perspective, discuss them from a subjective perspective, my own subjective perspective, uh, and ask some questions that may trigger some thoughts for you. And if you do have any thoughts when you are when you are listening, uh, either note them down on a pad or just note them in the comment section on the YouTube video or somewhere else so we can uh, start a discussion because a lot of these points are interesting to me and I'm sure there's going to be different perspectives for you guys listening. So talent development, who should the players listen to for learning? Now this was taken from a podcast I believe from the sports site show uh, when Jamie Taylor was talking. Now, this this conversation was related to sports, sports specifically, sports site show. But I think this can also be related to teaching and learning through in not only academics in higher level academics, so university, college, but also in school, and I think also in team and business environments as well. Because when people are in those environments, how do they know who to listen to? How do they know where to get the knowledge from? Who do they listen to to learn from? Uh, because if if they are learning from the person in charge, that person in charge may be outdated with knowledge, which is what happens typically in sports environments, uh, or there are too many people trying to give them advice. And now, looking at youth sport, which is where this uh, where this is context, uh, you've got adults. You've got parents, you've got peers, you've got supporters, then you've got the coaches and the managers and all the support members of staff. And then, the, the, like, if it's a team sport, it'll be players. And in school, again, you've got peers, you've got teachers, you've got different teachers saying different things, which I think is one of the biggest problems in school. Uh, and how do, the, how do the students know, how do we know who we need to listen to, who's right, who's wrong, which one do we listen to, which one do we pay attention to? Um, and most of the time, from my experience, when you're in school or when you're at coaching or whatever, you pay attention to the one that's most likely uh, going to impact a result. So if you're at school, you'll listen to the person that's in charge of your exams or your essays. If you're coaching, like if if you're playing sport, you're going to listen to the coach because the coach is obviously going to pick you for the the game on the Saturday or the Sunday or select you in the team. So you'd listen to the person that has uh, the most power over or most influence over the actions that you take with the goals that you want to achieve, which isn't necessarily the best idea, but most of the time it is a safe option. So how do we try and one, control this environment for individuals that are learning, and two, how do we make sure as learners ourselves that we are listening to someone that is not necessarily right, because right is a belief, knowledge is belief, uh, but safe. How, how do we listen to someone's knowledge uh, and know that it's somewhat safe and somewhat reliable or at least verifiable with research or evidence or experience of some sort? Now, I, I don't think there is a, a definite answer to this because everyone is going to have different experiences, everyone's going to have different knowledge bases, and everyone's going to have uh, a, a level of, uh, I don't want to say expertise, but a, a level of experience that allows knowledge and beliefs to be rationalized and justified in their own minds. So where where is the line? Do you set a line for, okay, you can now tell this person something or you now can't tell this person something? Uh, and this this sort of coincides with fake news. How do we know what fake news is? How do we know what news is? Uh, and how do we try and sift through that sort of stuff on social media um, and in conversations? Some people. Uh 
say stuff in conversation that is in the spur of the moment because they feel pressured or feel like they need to say something so do you actually want to say that thing or not uh, and 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 ask, answering those questions answering that question I think is something we need to do ourselves as learners but then as teachers we also need to ask ourselves okay who who can these people listen to who should these people listen to if I am going to be teaching them maybe give them other sources that they can learn from as well so give them sources online give them uh, other individuals that you you know are reliable you know are somewhat neutral in their views and not necessarily completely biased and give loads of fake news and then as learners we need to just be critical and skeptical about what is going on who we are listening to who we're like getting information from and when, when we do hear something and we go actually is that true we really need to question it something from my own experience quite recently as I was listening to a webinar and the webinar they were referring to external focus of control and internal focus of control and they said external focus of control is really good for this thing that they were talking about I thought it was internal and instead of just accepting that I was wrong um, yes potentially I could have been wrong but when I went into the research actually my understanding of internal and external focus was was more justified, more evidence-based. I'm not going to say it was right because we still don't know what right and wrong is in coaching environments, but my my understanding of internal control was more evidence-based. Therefore, my reasoning behind staying with my understanding is backed by science, is backed by other research, which I was just skeptical. I didn't want to I didn't want to say ah you're wrong because I didn't know if they were wrong, but I wanted to challenge their what they said with my own quick little deep dive and um, to confirm what it is that I was saying. Now, this relates to learning, and this is where I think in the research it needs to go a little bit further. Now, this comes from the Perception Action podcast, which is again another sport related podcast, and they were saying so Rob Gray was talking about getting into the nitty gritty of research, not just repeatability. Now, he was speaking specifically in skill acquisition, so motor learning, motor development of certain movement patterns, but this can also be applied in social sciences, in cognitive psychology, in almost all elements of research. Uh, a, a perfect example in the relative age effect was lots of people are trying to find in research where the relative age effect is apparent. It is in this sport, it is in this sport, it is in that sport, it is in this context. And I have done an article on the relative age effect, and there are hundreds, absolutely hundreds of citations and references about whether the relative age effect appears in sports. That's great. Okay, now we know that the relative age effect is a thing what so what like how, how do we measure it how do we do something about it and this is where research I think needs to go a little bit further so we had this point I think it was like 1980 something where the relative age effect was a, a thing or maybe even earlier 1970 and then we have 30 years of repeatability studies. I'm like, cool, great, so what? What do we do about it? Uh, it's been repeated in academics as well. Cool, so what? What do we do about it? Uh, and what we do about it is ask more specific questions. So, okay, it's in this environment. Is it also in this environment and why is it there? Maybe this is looking at mechanisms. <coughs> one, one example of a mechanism that some people have tried to find uh, is a theoretical basis of relative age effect, which was looking at different social modalities, different social, um, or social impact factors. So the coach, the player and the parent. Th those those three different uh, social agents of the relative age effect and different psychological effects or phenomena phenomena that could 
trigger, cause, uh, contribute to the relative age effect. And this has been found in the Galati effect, the Matthew effect, the Pygmalion effect. All of these different effects have been somewhat uh, associated with the relative age effect, but no one has really gone in and tested, okay, this is an effect that could be happening with these people, let's have a look at this test and see if it impacts, see if it impacts the relative age effect. No one's done that, that nitty-gritty research. Uh, and the same can be said in skill acquisition. Lots of people say, okay, if we do blocked practice, we get better at this thing. Great. And then they just did block practice. And then someone went, actually, you know what? I, do, I don't like this. Let's try something else. And then they tried distributed practice and actually found that distributed practice is better uh, at, some, at, at teaching some skills than blocked practice. And then everyone just repeated distributed practice. Look, it's really good in this frame. Look, it's really good in that environment. So what? We already know this. Give us something else. Tell us something else. Um, research something else. Find something new out. And, and finding these new studies is very difficult. I think that's partly because of the way the papers, the research industry is, because you need to find something that's significant. And we could talk about p-hacking, but I'm not going to go off on that little rant. Um, but... The, the, the science, the research, is somewhat biased towards things and, and confirming things that we already know, not finding new things out, which is a little bit irritating from my perspective as someone that is very curious. Uh, so getting into the nitty-gritty, I think, involves asking questions that we may not find significant answers to, but that's the point. If, like, no answer is an answer, like, no significant difference is still an answer, it's still something worth noting about. It's certainly better than finding another 10 repeatability studies on the relative age of it, which we already know is a thing. Um, anyway, small rant over. Then, mo moving, moving away from this nitty-gritty research and into how this can really impact learning, potentially impact learning, or how what what we are in in our school environment in our formal education environment the way that we are there can certainly impact how we learn in adulthood uh, and this was this was an interesting point brought up on let me get the reference the talent equation podcast by jack rolf this was a really interesting conversation talent equation again is sports specific that's my area of interest and they were talking so they they asked so i say they asked um uh, oh, wow, who's in charge of talent equation? I really apologise, I should remember. There we go, Stuart Armstrong, asked Jack Rolf. Uh, dyslexia, he, he, Jack Rolf has dyslexia. How does that environment uh, affect teaching? So, essentially, dyslexia, when, when you're in a teaching environment, you are treated slightly differently because of a, a, a potential uh, issue or problem you're having due to the context. And what Stuart was asking was, okay, you, you typically have more experience with failure, more experience with issues and struggles, and you have to find different ways of learning because of the way the system, the school system, is built. And Jack Rolfe said, yes, that's very true from his experience and from other people's experience that he, is, uh, that he knows has dyslexia or something similar, some other learning, uh, learning dif difficulty. And the interesting bit about this is, okay, this person is learning in a different way in the same environment because of the constraints they have on themselves. Then in later later on in life, when they do find different struggles or different like problems in the environment for learning because the other person is saying this, that, and the other, or there are different constraints in this environment that they haven't dealt with before, they've had that struggle. They've they've gone through those experiences of learning in constrained environments, so they are better. They are potentially they are better at changing uh, the way that they learn or 
altering the environment or at least challenging the way that they are learning, the way that they are developing the environment because of their prior experience in school. So does that mean those people, this is just me like thinking out loud here, does that mean that people in uh, g going through school in a somewhat normal fashion, normal way, are they at a disadvantage because they aren't being challenged that much? And I think that is a possibility. Those people that find school easier to go through, maybe, I don't have anything to back this up, but maybe they think that learning in the adult world is going to be just as easy, which it isn't always just as easy because there are lots of other constraints and environments, which potentially could be why applying theory to practice, uh, those students that do well in theory struggle to find ways to apply it to practice because looking at theory, there are very, very limited limitations in how you can learn because you can just read something else or find something else. Whereas in practice, you've got the weather, you've got the environment, you've got other people. As soon as you bring people into something, there are lots of things that can change. Uh, time, f facilities, <coughs> objects. There are so many different things in the world in practice that can change things. And change, knowing, having a, a level of understanding and knowing how to apply the theory into practice with this different environment could be better suited for people that have had to do that through their education, such as people with dyslexia. Maybe even dyspraxia and levels of ADHD and autism and these other different uh, learning difficulties. Maybe people with those different learning difficulties, because they've had to struggle through certain things, it's made them better on the other side. And when we, when I relate this to the relative age effect, typically people born earlier in the academic or sporting year have an advantage earlier on. But those born later, so the late developers, if they actually get through that, 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 that bias stage of coaching, they actually come out on top. It actually, when you look at the research, it actually finds that those individuals that are late maturers, late developers, Q4 individuals, they have an advantage because they've gone through all of these struggles and they've come out on top. And maybe this is the same. Maybe this is the same sort of thing in the schooling environment. Those people that have bigger struggles but still get through it are better off. And when when I think about the people in business, those people that are very, very, very successful struggled in school because they got bored, they got frustrated, they didn't enjoy the X, Y, Z, and they, they failed or they dropped out. And then they become like extremely, really, really successful entrepreneurs because they've gone through struggles and they know what they want to do and, and they just do it and they go for it and they don't mind failing. They don't mind messing up. So should we try and find people or condition people in school to fail more? Do we need to change the environment to make it harder for those individuals that do find it easy? I really don't know. That's a question that we could maybe explore at some point. Um, but yeah, and then ex expanding on this, there was a, a podcast, uh, another podcast. I do love listening to my podcast, a podcast from The Growth Equation, and they were talking about high performance. But this one specifically, they were talking about the top 10 best books of 2021. Yes, 2021. Um, and they brought up The Extended Mind, which is essentially the extended brain. And they were referring to how we, our mind is everything. Our mind, or well, this book is talking about our mind is everything. So that could be the tools that we're involved in, the environment that we're in, the struggles that we have, the constraints that we're in, uh, the physical, the external and internal feelings, emotions, interoception, 
or interoception, however you say it, uh, and all of these different things are our mind. That is how we think. We think in the environment, whereas our brain is the actual physical, like, mush in, in our skull. And this extended mind is looking at how the environment that we're in, the context we're in, the narrative we've created, builds up the way that we think, our mind way of thinking. So growth mindset, fixed mindset, infinite mindset, all those sort of things are features, I guess you would say, of the extended mind. And when looking at dyslexia, dyspraxia, and all these things that could be changing the way that you approach uh, tasks, changing the way that you approach thinking because of these uh, different environments, could be the extended mind that we are thinking about. So the extended mind could be influenced by prior learning, which is what a lot of learning theory is talking about. Learning theory, which I will get to uh, in a little bit, suggests that any every, every time that we retrieve or remember or try and do something actively with our mind, changes our learning, changes what we are learning, changes how we are thinking, changes our approach to retrieval. Because we've either attached it to a new schema, or we've chunked it with something else, or maybe we just have multiple uh, versions of this thing that we've tried to retrieve, so that we can find it easier or it becomes easier, the retrieval strength becomes stronger in that topic, that area, that fact, that thing, whatever it is. And that could be because of a way that we're thinking, which could be the extended mind, it could be a tool, it could be a cue, it could be uh, something in the environment, it could be something that's been said, or it could be something that we've done, it could even be something that we have felt. And all of these different things impact how we think, how we remember, how we learn, therefore the extended mind could be our second brain. For those of you familiar with the note-taking system, uh, the second brain is from Tiago Forte, and he talks about digital tools. But he talks about digital tools uh, as a second brain, as a way to essentially store stuff elsewhere. But what this extended mind, and I believe it comes from philosophy, this uh, this idea of the extended mind, yes. It comes from philosophy uh, from 1998, and this was from the Thinking thinking Outside the Brain, Finding Mastery talks to Annie Murphy, who is the author of the book, uh, and she refers to philosophy, talking about in 1998, looking at different tools and different ways of thinking outside of the body, thinking in emotions and potentially existential thought. Uh, and what... what what they were saying, really, was that the this this second brain idea from Tiago Forte is just a part of the extended brain because it's it's only tools and it's only remembering stuff. But our extended brain isn't just using stuff using tools to remember things. It's also ways of changing how we think, changing how we act, changing how we behave. Not just reminding us, oh, you need to do this thing. Oh, you need to do that thing. Um, oh, this was a note that you took this long ago. Or these are all the ideas that you're currently working with. It's okay, these are all the ideas you're currently working with. How does that impact all of the ideas that's currently going on in my mind? Or, the second brain, I'm going to get rid of that, but it's going to be in my mind because there is a second, um, I, I guess you would say, entry point, a second entry point, a second cue, a second experience, a second tangible thing for this idea, especially when we're looking at learning. If you have multiple cues, multiple memory points, oh, I learned this thing because I listened to the podcast, but I also wrote it down in my note system. You don't necessarily need to go back to the note. You just need to remember that you wrote it down in your note system because the act of remembering that you wrote it down is learning itself. Going to that note and finding something out isn't necessarily helping the memory, but the act of remembering that you wrote it down is. 
So the second brain might not even need to be used when it comes to actually finding the notes. It could just be used as a, oh yeah, I think I wrote that down. Maybe you use it as confirming that you've wrote it down, but you don't need to actually go and look at the note. And that's the interesting point here. The extended mind could just be, I've written it down on a post-it note, oh yeah, that's a cool idea, and then you carry on thinking because you've used the experience as a memory trigger rather than the actual thing itself, which is an interesting thought, I think, anyway. Um, and when it comes to learning, active recall is one of those topics, one of those terms that's thrown around quite a lot in the YouTube study tube space. Now, active recall, I'm doing a bit of uh, a bit of a deep dive and research on it at the moment myself, and active recall has become this term that lots of people use. Do active recall, use active recall. Active recall is this study technique, this all-knowing study technique and I will link my active my, my working page uh, in in the notes and I've got loads of videos in my working page uh, and this active recall thing isn't really a study technique it's not really like the more I look at it the more I think it's not really a study technique because what active recall essentially is is testing it's testing what you're doing so the that which is the testing effect it's not active recall it's the testing effect active recall is just recognition it's just retrieve and it's not recognition they're different things it's retrieval it's remembering something which is part of memory active active retrieval you can't really passively retrieve something. You can passively recognize something, or you can actively retrieve something. You can't passively recall something, because if you're recalling something, it's remembering. So that's why I, I, I don't like the term active recall, because you can't passively recall. You can passively study, but because you can just reread or highlight or do things that are fairly passive and you don't have to actively think about something, but you can't passively recall. So the term is a little bit irritating from my perspective. And when you look at study techniques, well, is is remembering a technique to study? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I mean, the the way the way I would see a technique is is an action that you would do that is different from something you would expect. And what you would expect to do is trying to remember something. You try to remember something which is retrieval. How you go about doing that is the technique. So the testing effect, i.e. testing yourself, is a study technique. Uh, and all of the different ways that you can use retrieval, active recall, any different technique that you can use for retrieval would be a study technique. I don't think remembering itself can be classed as a technique because that's what, that's what learning is. If you don't remember it, you don't learn it. Um, feel free to argue with me in the comment section, but active recall itself I don't think is a technique. I think it's something that happens due to the techniques that we are using, which could be, like I say, the testing effect or any sort of retrieval method, most of which are related to questions. Questions and answers, because that's how you retrieve information. But those questions could be done in conversations with yourself, with other people. They could be verbal, they could be written, and there are lots of different modalities and mediums at which you can answer or ask or find different ways to get to the retrieval process. One of the examples that was actually given in some of the studies in retrieval, active retrieval, uh, was they were note-taking. So the idea, there was a study and research and they were comparing just studying, which was just rereading the, the text and then recalling or retrieval and looking looking through and then asking questions. And they would they did this study and essentially what this uh, this study is, is linked in the article that I'm writing at the moment, which I, I will also link. Um, but what this study essentially does uh, is finds that if you take a note or a cue point when you are 
consuming this information and you use that cue point to help you remember it helps you answers not only the uh, verbatim questions the questions that are directly from the text that you're trying to remember but also inferential questions so questions that require a little bit of external thoughts so relating things together or just thinking completely outside the box and this just one word cue note in the notes allows the person to retrieve information better because the cue is there to help for retrieval but once they've retrieved it now they have two notions two experiences of the thing of the memory which helps them therefore retrieve it later on. So their retrieval strength goes up. Now they no, won't necessarily need that cue. And this is where I was thinking, like with the, 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 the what's the word, second brain, with the second brain, that could be the cue. The cue point could help with retrieval, the second point. Then once you've done that, so you've consumed the information, you've got the note, you've then done some retrieval process. So you've now got three different um, experiences with this topic, with this idea. And then when you go back to it again, you may not need or uh, you may not need the cue. So now you have four experiences, one of which is um, it's not passive retrieval, but it's aided retrieval. And then you have uh, unaided retrieval. I don't know whether they are, are terms uh, in, in the research, but that's that's the way I see it. And when we look at furthering this idea of retrieval in memory, retrieval in learning, there was a document that was shared by uh, John Donlosky, which is he is a, a researcher in the learning study techniques space in cognitive psychology. And he's done lots and lots and lots of articles uh, that was and he was the one that did the study that I was just mentioning. But there was a source, I cannot remember what it's called. Ah, oh, there we go, Strengthening the Student Toolbox. Again, all of the links will be uh, in the show notes. And they, uh, he, he spoke about lots of different techniques, study techniques, which are essentially practice and remembering. He uses retrieval, not active recall, retrieval um, and practicing. How do you practice? Distributed practice, blocked practice. Uh, I think, what, what was the other term? Let me have a quick look at my notes. The term is elaborate interrogation. Elaborate interrogation, which is essentially interrogating what you're thinking about, critically thinking about what it is that you're trying to learn and looking at different ways that it works, that it doesn't work and essentially trying to break it down into its knowledge parts so that you get a better understanding, a broad understanding of what's going on, which could be done in a mind map, or the knowledge parts being broken up, and then the understanding being the map itself, being able to make those related connections. And all of these different study techniques that he brings up in this Strengthening the Student Toolbox document relate to practice, just, just practice. Um, not passively practice, but actively practice through study techniques which require retrieval, i.e. remembering. Now, now that I've said all of this, this is great, but when it comes to skill acquisition or physical uh, acquisition of a movement, a motor skill, motor learning skill, where there are a variety of contexts, does this work the same way? I don't think so, because the way I see this idea of learning, of practicing and retrieval, it's very much in the information processing uh, style of learning, ways of learning, because it's retrieving certain information. Now, this is applicable to motor learning, to skill acquisition, but because of the amount of dynamics in especially movement skills in sport, this is where the discussion of information processing and di uh, and ecological dynamics start to uh, coincide with one another. So is the information processing system, i.e. all of these things that we've spoken or that I've spoken about today, is this more applicable in the school environment because of the constraints that school environment puts on our learning and then ecological dynamics more appropriate for a more um, 
less constrained environment because there are so many different things that could happen. Are they both right? Yes. Are they both wrong? Also, yes. <laughs> I think it depends on the context that you apply them to. So when we are learning things, do we need to take a different approach when we're learning different things? I think yes. Which approach do you take? I don't know which one's going to be more efficient, but that's what the learning is about. That's what we're trying to figure out in science. And this is where I think the nitty gritty research really needs to go. What environments, what contexts suit this type of learning better? Because we already know that when, re when you remember something, you're more likely to remember it again. We figured that out in like 1970 something, but we're still researching active recall uh, as a does this help doesn't this help and even though they are useful studies we need people going into other studies as well that ask questions that can be pushing our understanding pushing the limits of where we can actually learn uh hopefully i've triggered some thought for you uh, and if you do have any questions any ideas any contributions to the conversation either leave a, leave a comment in the youtube section on the video or leave uh, a send me a message over twitter or any social media platform but until then have a good day and uh, i'll see you guys next week